You are listening to Heal Yeah with Colleen Ziegler, produced by the Lighter Side Network. Visit thelightersidenetwork.com for hundreds of video episodes and podcasts exploring wholeness living, trance channeling, energy work, and more. The Lighter Side Network, where the everyday meets the extraordinary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heal Yeah podcast. I am your host, Colleen Ziegler, and today in the studio, I have Michael Nolan sitting across from me. Hi, Michael. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. I'm great. I'm so thrilled that you are finally here. We have taken months to connect, and I can't wait to share more about the work you're doing. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So for our listeners, Michael is a writer. He has written two books, one on urban gardening and the other one on plant-based cooking, but that is not the Michael we're talking to today. <laughs> but I wanted to share that tidbit because I didn't know that about you, and I love finding out all these different lives that people have had. <laughs> Same Michael, just a different topic. Today. Exactly. So today we're going to talk about the new nonprofit that you just started called Just Love More. Yes. And this nonprofit focuses on addiction and addiction recovery. Yes. And you can find more about Just Love More at justlovemore.org. But before we get started, how you started the nonprofit, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your own personal history and, and your life and how you got started doing this kind of work. Sure. Well, I was born in North Carolina a million years ago. and That's not true. <laughs> okay. So it was only <laughs> half a million. But I was, I was born in North Carolina and I had a a pretty, uh, I'll say, complicated childhood. I grew up as the stepchild of an addict, and um, my mother was very codependent. And it it created an environment at home that left you know children really not knowing how to be children because we all had to grow up so quickly. And I grew up not really understanding what love was and what it felt like to be secure in knowing that you were loved and cared for. And that, you know, that really impacted me quite a bit for a long time. And there came a point when, when I became a young adult and I was incredibly depressed and at times suicidal. And I got to a point one day when I realized that I was either going to have to give into it and just say, it's over, or say it's it's done that I'm I'm done with it. I'm not going to give it any more of my heart or my my time. Hmm. And and what I realized then was that my choice was going to be that I had to not give into it because I was seeing so many people around me who felt that way, who were depressed and had no direction and didn't feel like anyone cared about them. And I decided that if I was going to stick around, that I guess you could say my life's work was going to be about making sure that no one felt unworthy or unloved. That's beautiful. It really <laughs> is you. to have that kind of recognition at a young age. It, or I'm assuming that's a young age from young adulthood. I, I would think I was in my early, early 20s, okay. early to mid 20s at the time. And and we, during that time, did you feel like growing up in your household and, and afterwards when you were depressed, did you know it was from all of that? You know, it's some people just find themselves depressed and they didn't realize that it was actually a result 
of their household because they think maybe every household is that way. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense mm -hmm. because I didn't know any different as a yes. child. I thought I thought my life was completely normal. I thought that's what everyone went through. So even you know, when I was a teenager and going into young adulthood, I it took me years to understand what depression was mm -hmm. and that what I was experiencing was depression and loneliness and and feeling, you know, unworthy and unloved. I didn't I didn't really have the right words at the time for what I was feeling. So so it makes perfect sense. Mm. And and that is probably, I would say, the biggest contributor to why I am as as compassionately drawn to people, especially young people who are in the same boat, you mm -hmm. know, who I see myself in them. And I don't want people to have to question whether or not they're valued or they're loved. And that things can be different. Exactly. And if and if you're exposed to something different, you understand that. Mm -hmm. You can see that it can be different. In my case, when I was young, I didn't see that difference as a child. And often oftentimes children don't. I mean, you hear this you hear those stories that and and even looking back on my own childhood, you think that whatever's going on in your house is going on in every household. Exactly. <laughs> or everyone's parents are that way. And if they're not that way, it really sticks out and you're like, hmm. That's interesting, but you, you're you in such of your own little childhood bubble. Good or bad, you're in it. Very true. And I think that especially, you know, when, when we were growing up, we didn't have the internet and we didn't have this outlet. We might have had, you know, the primetime TV, but that wasn't reality. And so it was it was challenging to see that things could be different. So the more voices out there going it gets better or things change, you know, it's not always going to be this way, the better. What were some of the things in your early 20s that you started doing to make a difference? Well, I ended up through a series of uh, interesting events that we can talk about <laughs> later. I ended up living in New York City. And as a young adult, um, a young adult who had who had seen quite a bit of the world at that point, and I I had that new resolve that you know I was gonna I was going to help people, and I ended up going into work with suicide prevention with young people in New York City in you know, this huge city where mm -hmm. it's a it's a very pervasive problem, and I did that for several years, and I did not leave New York until two thousand two. So I was there. Um, I I did live through 9/11 and lost my partner and several people that I mm. cared very deeply for on that day. And I stayed in New York for just shy of a year. I left on my 30th birthday in 2002. And um, so I so I was doing that work while I was in New York. I was mm -hmm. working with you know with people who again were the throwaways of society. You know they were kicked out of of their homes for being gay. Or, yeah, or they were just homeless because they decided to move to New York and find a better life. Or they were addicts. Or they were in gangs. You know, there were there were a million different reasons why a young person would be suicidal. So you were seeing and hearing it all. Very much so. And and more. And I then mean, some. Yeah, above and beyond what most of us could probably even imagine. Right. There there came a time when when it took quite a bit to shock me, because I was hearing. I was hearing things every day that were just so beyond any anything that I could have recognized. How 
do you handle that kind of information? Like, would you, do you consider yourself an empath or did you start to feel kind of numb to, to people's problems? And I don't want to discount their problems by, and I know that's not the way you felt, but did you start to feel numb and say, well, I could just hear anything at this, at this time and it's not going to affect me or was it affecting you more than you realized? To answer the, the first question, yes, okay. I consider myself to be very much an empath, mm-hmm. and and I always have. Um, and as to whether, how it was affecting me, it affected me a lot. And I had I had the benefit of youth at the time. I was very young and very full of energy. So working seventeen to eighteen hours a day, you know, routinely sleeping two to three hours at a time was normal, and it was it was not a big deal for me energetically. I mm-hmm. could handle it. Um, how it affected me at the time, I, it affected me because, because of my empathy, mm-hmm. but I just from some stroke of sheer luck, I never held on to it. Mm-hmm. So I was dealing with really horrific stories. And at times the, the tragedy of, of sometimes people were successful mm-hmm. in, you know, in their suicide. And if I would have let that fester, I would never have been able to do it for longer than a week. What what tools did you use to let it go? Or was it just a natural leave the body type of thing? And right now, I think it's just kind of a hot topic. What tools do you use? Well, I, it's that's a really interesting question for me to think about now. Because looking back, I didn't do a very good job at intentionally mm taking care of myself. I was not good at self-care. I'm still not that great about Mm -hmm. it at 46 years old. But there was something about what I was doing that made me subconsciously realize that if I hold on to this story that that this young person is telling me today, if I dwell on this story, I'm not going to be conscious and and present and aware of what the next person is telling Mm. me. So it was it was almost like I'm I'm fully in that moment. I'm I'm in this conversation with you. I'm fully invested whatever you have to say. I'm going to be here with you until you need to you know until you're you've said what you need mm-hmm. to say. And we'll get the help you need, but then I have to move on. So which that is a tool. It I mean, was that's a tool, but it wasn't present and, and it wasn't something that I was particularly conscious of aside from the fact that I that I had studied um Buddhism for years. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I've always been keenly aware of being, you know, being fully present. So that, that did, I guess in retrospect, that was probably the biggest tool that I had in my arsenal at the time that I was aware of. And I wasn't even aware that I was using it. Wow. <laughs> you, you are the very first person who has asked me that question really? in years. So so it's, I, I appreciate that question. I mean, it's something that I think we all think about because, it, it, you know, empath is kind of this new word and people are starting to recognize that they are empaths and they take on other people's emotions and feelings and that we do need tools to get through to realize that we might have these emotions of being angry or depressed, but they might not actually be their own. Our our own rather, yes. Um, yeah. So I just couldn't help but think about that, you know. And and having those tools, I'm just hearing your story, Michael, and I'm like, 
Oh my gosh. So you're doing this work and that's, that's work. And, and I didn't realize you were doing it for 18 hours a day or, you know, just really pouring your heart and soul into it. And then 9-11 happens and you lose your partner and, yes. and some of your good friends as well. How does one get through something like that? I, I, I mean, one really, day at a time, one day at a time, seriously, uh, in retrospect, I, it probably took me about two years to realize it, but I think the fact that I was doing the work that I was doing mm -hmm. you know, in, in suicide prevention and in keeping young people motivated to do something that was beyond them and that was bigger than themselves. Um, my work focused on the music industry at the time. So, so when, you know, a young person, you know, came to us, we worked with getting, finding out where their interests and their, and their um, experiences were. Mm -hmm. And if they had an interest of working in, you know, if they wanted to be a singer, then I found someone to mentor them, you know, to, or to, you know, get them singing lessons or you know, whatever it took to, to nudge them in that direction. And I was a musician while I was in New York. Mm. So, so that, that area was, you know, was something that was very you know, easily understandable for me. And I could I could find a connection to just about any area of music and entertainment. That's great. To, you know, to get people into it. Do you have any stories of you know kids that you helped that went on to do something really great with their music? There have been there have been a couple of people that I worked with um, who th they themselves were not major name mm -hmm. musicians, but they have. They are in the industry today. That's fantastic. And, and the only reason I don't I don't say that you know, that these were my kids yeah. is because because those were very rough years, mm -hmm. you know, for for those you know for the people that I worked with. Sure. And just in the interest of of their privacy, I don't ever really you know mention their names. Yeah. But yeah. yes, it 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 does my heart good every time I I see a name that I recognize. And, you know, and I know that that person, you know, mastered this album or produced this song, mm -hmm. you know, for, you know, for someone that's you know, on the radio today. That's fantastic. So you left New York and you, I'm making assumption you moved to Atlanta at that time. I did not. Okay. <laughs> I moved south. I moved, um, my, my mother's family was in Alabama and I moved uh, to Alabama and spent the last several years of my grandmother's life with her. Mm. Um, you know, so I would be able to be close to her mm -hmm. um, at the end of her life. And then a few years later, I ended up moving to Atlanta. And all told, I've been in Atlanta for about eight years. Okay. So tell me more about Just Love More. And how it came into existence and kind of its life before becoming a nonprofit. The evolution of Just Love More. Yes, yes. <laughs> so in early summer of 2016, everything on social media and in the people that, that were around me at the time seemed to be very heavy and, and negative and hopeless and I, I was frustrated and, and it was, it was bringing me down because I'm not a negative person. I like, I like to 
to keep things positive. Um, an example being for almost 16 years now, I have been doing a, a weekly post on social media called Good News Friday. So every Friday morning, without fail, for almost 16 years, I have made a post on Facebook that just reminds people, no matter what's going on in your life, look for something good that's happened to you this week and, and tell us about it. That is really impressive. Consistently for 16 years you've it's been doing it? Between 15 <laughs> and 16 years, yes. Wow. Is that on your own personal Facebook page? Yes, okay. it is. And it, it actually started in a, in a private writer's group that, that I was a part of at the time. Mm -hmm. So I did it there for a couple of years before I moved it over to, to my personal site. So in the summer of 2016, uh, while all of that was happening and while I was, I was feeling defeated myself, um, I ended up having a dream about my biggest hero in the world, Henry David Thoreau. Mm -hmm. And I, I was frustrated and I was, I was sitting in the woods at, asking Thoreau for advice. It's, it's, it's crazy when I, when I tell the story back, but I, I was just asking for advice and I woke up the next morning with a Thoreau quote in my head that said, the only remedy for love is to love more. Mm. And I got out of bed, I sat down at my computer and I designed a little makeshift logo. I sent it off to a company and ordered some stickers and I just started handing out these really poorly designed, ugly stickers. With a beautiful message. With a beautiful <laughs> message. The message was just love more. And within two weeks, people were contacting me saying, this is a really great idea. What are you going to do with it? What's next? Six weeks after the day I made the first sticker, we had raised enough money that we adopted an elementary school class in an underserved community in Northwest Atlanta. And we bought their school supplies for the entire year. We gave um, gift cards to the, the class teacher. We gave uh, gift cards to the school nurse and to the principal um, to, you know, to help them mm -hmm. with whatever their needs were. And that ended up being the very first of what we called action campaigns. Every two to three months for two years, there was another one. And we did everything from helping elementary kids to um, buying uh, hats and gloves and and socks for homeless people mm. in in conjunction with with a faith based organization that was doing a drive one winter, um, the the last major campaign that we did, uh, we I bought uh, little toiletry bags mm -hmm. with the logo on it, and we filled them with personal care items to provide to women that were being helped to get out of the sex trafficking industry. Mm. So homeless women and women that were being, you know, that were transitioning out of sex trafficking. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we just wanted to give them something that would remind them that they were worth being loved mm. and it had nothing to do with what they could offer. It was just the fact that they existed. And so that was the last action campaign that we did. I love the, I love the action campaign. Because the first thing that came to mind was actions speak louder than words. Exactly. Yeah. And and to have those beautiful words, but then to put that kind of action behind them is a really powerful movement. One of the very first um, 
I guess I could say taglines that I used when I was telling people about what we were doing Mm -hmm. is that love is an action. Mm. It's not a thought. It's an action. Yeah. You can say you love someone, but you can show them and they'll know it. Mm -hmm. They, They won't have to hear it to know. Yes. And so that was the reason that we were doing the action campaigns because we were affecting people that I'll never personally come in contact with. I'll never know them. They'll never know my name but they will remember the phrase, just love more. Mm -hmm. And that to me is all I care about. And to to take it beyond uh, the action campaigns, um, in late fall last year, I realized that we had been doing these these action campaigns, but there was no rhyme or reason to them. They were all different. They were all kind of random. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to, I wanted to have a direction And I kind of felt like it was time to start thinking about if I was going to continue this, it needed to, it needed to evolve. Mm. And I started thinking about um, deciding whether or not it should be, become a nonprofit organization. And then I got frustrated with myself because I didn't have one clear, clearly defined direction. Mm -hmm. So I just tabled it for a while. I was still making stickers for, for two and a half years I'd been making stickers, and anyone who sent a self-addressed stamped envelope to our post office box would get stickers. I would, I would send them back. Um, and I, so I just sat on it. And at the end of the year, um, at the end of 2018, I had almost not thought about it anymore at all. I just mm-hmm. kind of you know, survived the holidays without, <laughs> without feeling like I needed to save the world. So right now we're in March of 2019. So that wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't. At all. So the first week of this year, of the first week of January, um, I got some news that kind of really blindsided me. My best friend uh, told his husband and me that he was addicted to crystal methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. And it caught us all completely off guard. Thankfully, because of the work that I had done with suicide prevention all those years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, suicide and addiction go hand in hand, Uh, almost without exception Mm. that the two of them, if you have addiction, there is going to be a suicide um, question coming up at some point. Mm -hmm. And vice versa? In many cases, yes. Um, Or at least um, the the addictive behaviors. Uh, But when... He came to me and and you know and said that he was addicted and he wanted help. He wanted to live. I didn't think. I didn't probably for the first week. I didn't think at all. I went to their house. I said, "This is what we need to do." Mm-hmm. We found an appropriate facility. Um, two days later, I packed a bag for him. I put him on an airplane, and he went to a rehab facility. Mm-hmm. And then after that, after he was gone and I knew that he was, he was somewhere cared for, I turned my attention to his husband, who is also a very good friend of mine, mm-hmm. and making sure that he was getting the care he needed. And then thinking about things like someone needs to go through the house because there are things hidden here. Mm. This was a drug addict. Mm-hmm. And so... Someone needs to do that. And I didn't want his husband to have to do that. 
I've done it before. Mm-hmm. I know I know what that experience is like. I know there's people out there listening, and and really, I'm sitting across from you, and I'm thinking the same thing. How can someone be addicted to crystal meth and have the people around them not not know? And I know these are questions you were asking yourself too. So this isn't like, how did you not know? It's like, you know, I know that there's people out there who, you know, are living with someone. They think something's up. And you think, oh, they're they're kind of off, but that is that's big news. That's really big news. It was it really was big news. And the short answer is, there's I can't really just tell mm-hmm. you this is how this is how you know or you don't know. Aside from walking in and seeing them using a drug, you can't really just know that they're doing it. Um, in in my friend's case, he was exceptionally good at hiding it. Mm. And uh, with within the within the gay community, um, meth use is is a lot more accepted mm. than I think I think um, it should be. Okay, obviously, it's it's something that's that's used quite a bit and not necessarily thought of in conjunction with you know, with addiction. Mm. Just you know, having a good time, and there are a lot of issues you know tied into that. You know, just that topic alone, yes. but. Um, the good thing is that he did tell us that he had been doing it for, for an extended period of time and we did get him help. And that takes a lot of courage on his end it, to yes. come to both of you and say, I need help. Very much so. And, and it came on the heels of, of a crisis for him, mm-hmm. you know, a, a personal crisis you know, when, when he came to terms with what he was doing to himself and the people around him. And that his choice was either he was going to live or he was going to die. Mm-hmm. And if he was going to live, he needed help. So thankfully, we were able to get you know, get the help he needed. Um, however, the the process of finding the right facility and finding a facility that accepted this insurance and and you know, that worked with this timeline, there were so many hoops to jump through to get any kind of help for addiction, whatever the addiction is. Um, and it's very costly. Extremely yeah. costly. So not you know, we found one that, that worked with his insurance, but it kept crossing my mind. What if he wasn't insured? Mm-hmm. You know, what if he, was in, if he was uninsured and he came to me and said, I need help, this entire story would be different because mm-hmm. I wouldn't know where I could send him that was reputable that would that he would be able to do without having insurance and all of that and going through their house and you know, and finding all of the hiding places and you know getting getting all of the things out of the house that needed to be gone mm-hmm. and making sure all of all of the right steps were being taken all of those things had become second nature to me all those years ago when i was working in suicide prevention and i never even realized it at the time until I was going through this, mm. when my friend's husband, one afternoon, um, we were standing in the kitchen having coffee, and he said, what do people in this situation do if they don't have a Michael? And I mean, it, it, it broke my heart, and it made me feel good at the same time. Mm-hmm. But when I left the house that day, it made me realize that there is a hole in in the recovery service arena mm-hmm. that 
that really needs a lot of time and attention. And that ended, ended up being why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Um, that entire process, going through it with my best friend mm -hmm. and um, everything that I've done since the beginning of the year has, has reaffirmed that this was the right thing to do. That working in addiction and recovery is, is exactly where I need to be at this point in my life. Tell us, with the organization, I know it's really fresh, is that something that Just Love More is going to help with and assist with is getting people into recovery that wouldn't normally have the funds to do so? Yes. Um, that's my primary focus. Uh, when, when I first had the crazy idea to, to make it an actual and official organization was to make sure that someone who needs help with, with addiction or recovery mm -hmm. um, would be able to find access to whatever was available you know, to them. Um, at this point, you know, we're, we're brand new. We're still in the process of finishing the application to become federally recognized as a nonprofit. Um, until you are a 501c3, mm -hmm. you, your donations are not tax deductible. So, and you can't apply for, for federal grant money and things like that. So if I remember correctly, I think a nonprofit has to be two years before you can apply for some grants. Is that still the case? I think I mean, each grant can be, can be different, mm -hmm. but I know there, there are grants that are, they want track records and they yeah. want, they want to know not only how long you've existed, but what you've already sure. they accomplished. They want to see your resume that you've done without any grants. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's one of the reasons that grant writing itself is such a discipline yes. that there, that there are people that, that that's all they do because it really does take a lot of, of effort and, and dedication you know, to get into that area. But through this process, when we do complete um, getting through the 501c3 application, and we are a recognized federal nonprofit, uh, we will be working, raising funds to be able to sponsor people who are financially otherwise you know, unable to, to get the care that they mm -hmm. need. I do not see us um, actually becoming an addiction recovery facility mm -hmm. in any way. That's that's not. You know, I'm not a medical professional. I don't. That's not where my passion is. I mm -hmm. want to support people to get them to the care that's available. I want to, if it's possible, encourage more medical professionals, um, you know, reputable you know, facilities to exist mm -hmm. and. And to be able to work and align ourselves with those people um, to make care more affordable, um, to make sponsorship programs the norm so that people who do not have insurance that almost completely covers that care will still be able to say that they are you know, sober for mm -hmm. 30 days or 60 days. And, and so that's, that's really where... I see us going. There, there are a lot of different programs and, you know, and things that I plan on doing, but our focus is going to be on our mission statement, which is, is offering compassionate support to people who are affected by addiction. And that applies not only to 
the addicted person, but also to the people who love them mm. and the people in their lives. Absolutely. Because I know that there is a big gap in, in the care, the ongoing care of the people who are around addicts. Absolutely. And, and the, yes, the emotional support, the physical support, you know, you got to give care to the caregivers. Exactly. <laughs> and for those of us who have been around addiction, I've, I've been around it myself. Um, and I think actually, I can probably speak for a lot of people, we've all been around it in some form or fashion, either with our family or our friends. And those of us who are, you know, seeing this person go through this very challenging time. Addiction is no joke. It is like, it's above and beyond. And it's so difficult to understand, but to, to help those people that are around it, I don't know if the word is to understand it better, but to have some kind of support is so important. I think the work you're doing is so needed. I mean, it is, I, I, you know, I'm just getting chills because you talk with such conviction and I see it getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I like to say that I love what I'm doing. Yes. I just hate that it has to be done. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, so thank you for the work you're doing, first and foremost. And the world needs more Michaels. It does. <laughs> <laughs> and your friends are so fortunate to have you in their lives. But it sounds like you were all placed in each other's lives. I'm fortunate to have them in, yes. my, in my life as well. So tell me... Where do you see Just Love more in, let's say, five years? What what would be the perfect situation for you and to know that you've succeeded in, in what you wanted to do? Honestly, my, um, my gauge for to know that I've succeeded is, is very small scale. Mm -hmm. The fact that, that my best friend has, as of this week, um, been sober for 60 days. Um, and that he's home and that he's doing well. Um, for me, that is that is success. Mm -hmm. The fact that I that I was able to to be a part in making that happen, I am a success for that. Um, as far as what Just Love More will do um, moving forward, especially in the next five years. Um, initially, I want to establish what will become a pilot program in in the Atlanta metro area. That will be working, as I said, with um, offering support, um, logistical, financial, emotional support for addicts and you know, the people who love addicted people. Um, and from that, from there, from the pilot program here, I would like it to eventually, maybe within four to five years, um, have another you know, a satellite program open somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to see it happen in New York. Obviously, New York is some is a place that's very you know, special to me. Mm -hmm. But that's, I think, that's probably my biggest hope for what we'll accomplish is that what I'm creating here and what we're doing here is something that will be replicated and that it will eventually cause the numbers um, of of deaths by alcohol and drugs and suicide to go down. Mm. Just uh, this morning, I was pointed to an article, I think it was in USA Today, that said that um, 
2017, which was the last fully recorded year, mm -hmm. that the number of deaths by alcohol, drugs, and suicide were the highest that they've been since those statistics were recorded. And and those were began being officially recorded in 1999. Mm -hmm. So we have had more drug, alcohol, and suicide deaths in 2017 than we have since before 1999. And I want to see those numbers dropping. Absolutely. Because as I said before, I think alcohol and drugs and suicide, they're, they're all connected mm -hmm. because you don't just treat addiction to alcohol or to crystal methamphetamine and you're done. Mm -hmm. There is mental health involved. And that's one of the reasons that there is, that there is a new term now called co-occurring disorders. Hmm. A co-occurring disorder and treating co-occurring disorders means that you're not just treating someone for being addicted to heroin or to alcohol or whatever. Mm -hmm. You are treating someone for their addiction, and then you are looking into their mental health, mm -hmm. and you are treating if there is a mental health issue that's not just you know, depression. Mm -hmm. um, well, and don't you find, too, that, you know, Addictions, especially over long periods of time, create even more of a mental health issue because of the the damage that they do to the brain and, and to the body. Right. And now there's a reason they used to call co-occurring disorders dual diagnosis. Mm. So that would mean, let's say, alcohol addiction and depression. So that's dual, dual mm -hmm. meaning two. The reason they changed it to co-occurring disorders is because it could be addiction, mental health. And physical health. It mm -hmm. could be, you could have three different things happening at the same time, and they're all intermingled. And it can be that the addiction, you know, triggered the physical ailment. Mm. It could be that the physical ailment and the pain from the physical ailment led them to have to take the opioids in the first place, and that led to addiction. And they had a mental health issue that that made it worse. So they could all be intermingled. Wow, that's. First of all, you're a wealth of information, <laughs> and you're going to help so many people, and you already have. Thank Certainly you so. so much for joining me today. I really, really appreciate you coming in the studio today. Thank you for having me. So tell us how people can get in touch with you, Michael, and how they can support your wonderful organization. Well, you can find Just Love More on the web at justlovemore.org. Uh, we're on Facebook, Just Love More Inc., uh, Instagram. Same thing, Just Love More Inc. Um, if you wanted to reach out to me directly, uh, you can reach me by email. It's michael at justlovemore.org. Great. Thank you so much, and thank you again. And again, thank you for the work you're doing. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. The ideas expressed by guests are not necessarily Colleen's personal beliefs. Information received from Hilya is not to be used as a substitute for medical or psychological advice. See and hear more from Colleen by subscribing to The Lighter Side Network at www.thelightersidenetwork.com. The Lighter Side Network, where the everyday meets the extraordinary.